There was once a simple Jew sitting at a long table in the synagogue listening to the rabbi's class in an old wood synagogue in the, in the old country. And as he's trying to pay attention and he's trying to understand the words of the rabbi, he uh, is beset with a feeling of deep frustration that he really, he really cannot follow the lesson that the rabbi is teaching. And in this frustration, he gets up from the lesson and he walks outside of the synagogue. And he's suddenly approached by a stranger, a mysterious stranger. The mysterious stranger says, you look distraught. He says, I am. And why might you be distraught? He says, because I am an ignoramus. I do not know how to study Torah, and I can't even follow the rabbi's class. The mysterious stranger says, producing a parchment from his pocket, take this. This is a chart of the Aleph base, the 22 holy letters of the Aleph base. Study the Aleph base from this parchment and see what happens. And the, uh, the man says, okay, I'm, I'm willing to try that. And he takes the parchment. But just as he's taking the parchment, the mysterious stranger stops him. He says, but one thing, one condition. When you become a scholar, you always have to learn with whomever wants to learn with you. And the man laughs. He says, when I become a scholar, <laughs> when I become a scholar, of course, of course, if I were able to teach anyone, of course I would teach them. I agree. And he takes the parchment. And he walks back into the shul, and he just starts going over it, olive base, vase, gimel, dalit. And by the time he finishes, by the time he gets to sof, something's different in his mind. He sits down at the class, and he, he suddenly he's absorbing everything. Everything makes sense to him. And from that day forward, every holy book that he opens is immediately comprehensible to him in, in the deepest, most profound ways. Story number two. A poor man is walking around in the marketplace and he's trying to find perhaps an odd job with which he can earn a few pennies to put bread on the table. And he feels deeply distraught with his inability to make a living and support his family. And at, at, at this moment of angst, he's approached by a mysterious stranger. The mysterious stranger says, you look distraught. He says, I am. He says, what's the cause? He says, I'm unable to make a living. Whatever I do, I'm, I'm unable to succeed in business. And the mysterious stranger produces a coin from his pocket. He says, I want you to take this coin and hold on to it. Don't spend it. Just keep it with you. And I think you're going to see that your uh, luck in business is going to change. But one condition. 
when you become a wealthy man, when anyone asks for tzedakah, don't question it. Give them the amount that they ask for. And the poor man laughs and he says, I'm the recipient of tzedakah. I'm the charity case. If I'll become wealthy enough to hand out donations, of course, with, with, with great joy, I will hand out donations. Of course, of course. And uh, that moment, somebody offers him some merchandise to buy at a cheap price. Then somebody a minute later comes over to buy that merchandise and he sells it, he makes a profit, and things are rolling. And from that moment forward, every business deal that he touches is successful. Story number three. There's a young man, an eligible bachelor, and he is looking for his soulmate. And he is feeling alone. And in this moment of despair, when he is reflecting upon his life of solitude, a mysterious stranger appears and says to the young man, you look distraught. He says, I am. He says, what's the cause of it? He says, I'm looking for a good wife, and I haven't found one. And the mysterious stranger says, I happen to know of a shidduch, of an excellent match for you. Over on that hill, there lives a widow, and she has a daughter who is of marriageable age. And this daughter is of sterling character. She's a wonderful girl. And nobody knows about her. She's a, a hidden treasure. I'm telling you, go to the home of the widow and ask her, ask the widow if you can meet her daughter. And I am telling you, you will be happy. And the young man says, okay, you know, I'll try it out. And he starts to walk toward the hill over there. And the mysterious stranger stops and says, so, but hold on a second. Before you take me up on my offer, I, I, I should tell you there's one condition. If you do end up marrying the widow's daughter, then uh, whatever she asks you for, as long as you are man and wife, you will respond in the affirmative. You will do whatever she asks. And the young man says, of course, of course. If I would have a wife, somebody to share my life with, of course, whatever she asks, I would do. You're just now uh, catching on that this is just a parable, right? Okay, so let's continue the parable. It's five years later. And there is a great and renowned scholar giving his high-level advanced class in Talmudic studies. And he is surrounded by his devoted students. 
and in the midst of this scene, a mysterious stranger appears. And he says to the scholar, Rebbe, I'm an ignoramus. My father never took me to Cheder. Teach me to read. And the scholar says, teach you to read? Am I a, a Malamed, a Rebbe in, in Cheder, a, a kindergarten teacher? I'm a high-level scholar. I teach high-level advanced students. The mysterious stranger says to the scholar, but I'm asking you to have a teach me. The scholar says, I don't have time for such childish lessons. Find somebody else. And the mysterious stranger says, Rebbe, I know your secret. You were once an ignoramus just like me. I know you were given that parchment of olive base, and that's what opened your eyes. The scholar pulls out the parchment. He's been carrying it with him ever since it was given to him. He pulls it out. He says, this, this, you think I need this? What I've achieved is because of my acumen, is because of my smarts. I don't need a piece of parchment. And he gives it back to the mysterious stranger. He says, you take it. The mysterious stranger disappears. The scholar goes back to continuing giving his class, and as he tries to return to the subject matter, he can't, he can't, he, it's, it's gone, it's gone. Not just the, 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 the train of thought, everything, all of his Torah knowledge, it's gone. He knows nothing. Around that same time, a mysterious stranger appears at the home of a wealthy man. The door is answered by the butler. And the mysterious stranger says, I am collecting money. I need 200 rubles to marry off my daughter. And the butler says, we have a policy in this house. The master gives one ruble to all fundraisers. And he gives him one ruble. The mysterious stranger says, but I'm saying that this particular cause requires 200. May I speak to the master of the house and explain what it is that I'm fundraising for? And the butler says, that's not what we do. We give out one ruble. So the mysterious stranger, he barges in. He makes his way past the butler, and he finds the rich man sitting in his office. And he says... Good sir, I'm here on a serious ma matter. I'm collecting 200 rubles. Can you help me? And the rich man says, whatever my butler has already told you is the only answer that you will get from me. And the mysterious stranger says, good sir, you look at me. You look at me. I'm in tatters. I'm a poor man. But I know your background. You were once a poor man just like me. I know that you were given once a coin, and from that day that you received that coin, your business matters all succeeded. And the rich man, who's been carrying the coin with him every day since it had been given to him, he pulls out the coin and says, this, this, this little good luck charm, this means nothing. I succeeded in business because of my business sense. Take the coin, and that's all you'll be receiving here. 
mysterious stranger takes the coin, disappears, and within moments, the news comes from a messenger that the rich man's warehouse has burnt down, his uninsured shipment of merchandise that was coming in on a boat at sea just sank. He's completely bankrupt. That's it. In one moment, his fortune wiped out. Around the same time, the mysterious stranger is making his way up the hill, the hill upon which the, the widow lives. And the woman of the house, she's been married for about five years, she looks out of the window and she sees this stranger coming up the hill and she says to her husband, there's a, there's a, there's a stranger coming up the hill, a guest. We need to prepare hospitality for him. And uh, she tells him, go and uh, slaughter the sheep. And we'll roast it and we'll be able to serve a fine meal to our guest. Now this was their livelihood, the sheep. This is how they, they sold the wool from it and they sold the milk. But uh, the wife says, we have a guest. We have the opportunity to do the mitzvah of welcoming a guest. Go slaughter the sheep and roast it and we'll serve a fine meal to our guest. And the husband looks at his wife and he says... So let me just ask you a question regarding like the formula of this story. They're all going to strike out? He looks at his wife and he says, yes, dear. That's right. We got a winner. And he goes to slaughter the sheep and to roast it. And as he's taking care of this business, the stranger notices and he says, oh, what are you doing? He says, don't worry, this is for you. We're going to serve you a nice meal. He says, you're serving me, a stranger, such a nice meal? He says, well, it was my wife's idea. The stranger says, you always do everything that your wife says? He says, of course I do, ever since we got married five years ago. The stranger says, well, that is excellent. Then you and your wife should live together very happily. And here is this parchment. And here is this coin. Okay, so since we all caught on <laughs> that this is just a pretend story, it's a parable, that means it's a made-up story that is designed to teach a lesson. <sighs> My question is like this. Since it didn't actually happen, could we change it? Could we change the story and we could have the guy who became the scholar, end up with the other two blessings, with the wealth and the happy marriage. Or we could rewrite it, and we could have the guy who became the rich man, he could end up with the other two blessings. He could, be, he could become a scholar and happily married. And we could change it. The third guy, the happily married guy, he could end up being like the first two guys in the way that we told it this time. In other words, what I'm saying is, so this particular story, we had the guy who was happily married, he's the winner, he, he wins everything. But 
we could rewrite the story in theory. In theory, right? Okay. Let me explain to you why we can't. Well, we could. Why we shouldn't. Why it wouldn't have the same truth. The whole idea of a parable. A parable is a truth that's dressed in fine clothing. But it has to convey a truth. I want to explain something. A very simple concept. Actually, has nothing to do specifically with marriage. I know the topic here is about marriage. But this has nothing specifically to do with marriage. This is just a very general concept. And that is the concept of blessing. Blessing. How blessings work. The mechanics of blessing. To keep it relatively simple, blessings come from on high. We receive blessings from God. And in order to be the recipient of a blessing, one has to have a vessel. Or perhaps more aptly stated, one must be a vessel. What does it mean to be a vessel? To make yourself into a vessel. A vessel receives. A container that's full cannot receive. A container that's empty can receive. Humility is the key to all blessing. Because, you see, God can rain blessings down on us, but if we're not humble, we're not receptive. It would be like somebody puts out a barrel to catch rainwater, but the barrel's already full of honey. In order to receive that rainwater, the barrel has to be empty. In order to receive the blessings from on high, we have to be humble. We have to remove the ego. The ego is the blockage, the impediment for the blessing. The ego is the E-G-O, the edging God out. And make room for the flow to enter us. Here's the catch-22 about blessings. When you are blessed, the blessing itself can cause you to lose your blessing. And I'll explain very simply what I mean by that. When somebody is blessed and becomes comfortable with the blessing, takes for granted the blessing, or even attributes to Himself or herself, that blessing, right? I did it. I made this. That is the opposite of humility. Now I'm full. Now I'm brimming over with ego. And what happens? Even if God is still sending the flow of energy my way, I'm not a vessel anymore. I can't receive it. There's a story that's told in Lubavitch, in the actual town of Lubavitch, there was once a, a man who came to the Rebbe Rishab, the fifth Rebbe of Chabad. And he asked for a blessing in a particular area. And uh, the Rebbe Rishab told him, Ich kende nicht helfen, I can't help you. And then this man went outside of the Rebbe's room and he started crying bitter tears. Now the Rebbe Rishab had an older brother named Raza, Rebzalman Aaron. 
And he saw this chassid crying. And he said, why are you crying? He says, because your brother, the Rebbe, just told me he can't help me. So being an older brother, Rebbe Zalman Arin walked into the Rebbe Rashab's room and he said, there's a Jew outside crying right now because he says he came to you for a blessing and you said you can't help him. The Rebbe Rashab said, send him back in. The guy came back in. The Rebbe Rashab stood up, put on a gartel. He gave the man a blessing and that blessing was fulfilled. Now this particular story, the Rebbe told this story. And when the Rebbe told the story, he asked a couple of questions. First of all, why did the Rebbe Rashab say, I can't help you? Apparently he could help him because a minute later he did. Second of all, even if he couldn't help him, why say it in such a seemingly gruff fashion? I can't help you. Comfort him. I wish I could help you. I wish there was something. I, I, my heart goes out to you. Comfort the man. Don't just tell him the fact I can't help you. So the Rebbe explained it like this. In order to be the recipient of a blessing, you have to be a vessel. When this guy came in to the Rebbe Rashab and he asked for a blessing, the Rebbe Rashab could have given him that blessing, but the person was too self-reliant. He was too full of ego. And even if that blessing would have come raining down on him, he wouldn't have been able to absorb it. So the Rebbe Rashab told him the truth. I can't help you. I can bring down all the blessings you want into your life. You will not receive it. So then the man went outside, and he felt shattered, and he started crying. He felt, now I'm really in trouble. And the older brother of the Rebbe went back into the Rebbe and said, this man's crying, he's distraught, he's broken. And then the Rebbe Rashab said, perfect, we can work with that. Send him in. And then he gave him the blessing, and it was absorbed. So here's the thing. Blessings are a catch-22, because when you are blessed... And, in, and you enjoy your blessing, but then you become complacent, meaning secure in your blessing. You forget that it's only a gift. It's only a gift. Then you lose the blessing, God forbid. So in our parable, three men received three gifts. The scholar, he forgot that it was a gift. He thought it was his own smarts. The rich man, he forgot that it was a gift. He thought it was his own uh, business acumen. The married man, he did not forget that what he was given was a gift. Why do we tell the parable like that? So I'll tell you like this. The inherent danger of every blessing is that after a while it makes you arrogant and then you lose your blessing. There's one blessing that's guaranteed not to make you arrogant. <laughs> there is one gift that God gives into the life of every person that keeps you really humble. Of course it was the third guy. Of course it was the married man who received the other blessings. Because he was the most humble. Marriage kept him humble. 
Now, we can choose how to regard that. And I want to tell you something. There's a very fine line between cynically mocking marriage and celebrating what is most godly about marriage. Very fine line. Because they both zero in on the same aspect of marriage. Those who cynically mock the institution of marriage and those who revere it as the most godly thing that a human being can do are zeroing in on the same aspect of marriage. You know what that is? That marriage is an ego destroyer. So depending on how you regard ego is how you regard something that destroys ego. So if you would like to keep your ego intact, so marriage is a big threat. If your quest in life is to get rid of that impediment, to clear the blockage so that the infinite can shine straight through, unimpeded into your life, then the most spiritually, how should I say, the most uh, advantageous decision a person can make toward his own spiritual growth or her own spiritual growth, how to get close to God, how to really remove anything that gets in between us and infinity, get, get, get a spouse, get married. And then God can enter our lives in all types of ways, in all types of ways, not just blessing the marriage, but in all aspects of life. You know, there was a study that was done at UCLA a few years ago. Well, actually, I think it was an 11-year longitudinal study. It just came out a few years ago, I think in 2014. And um, they studied 172 couples over 11 years, and they were trying to discern which values or principles held by individuals had the highest correlation to happy marriage. In other words, they would watch these people and interview them uh, over a long period of time and ask them about their values, their beliefs, and then try to conclude what kinds of attitudes might a person have that would have the highest level of correlation to a, to a happy marriage. And at the end of the 11-year study, what they concluded was that the single, far and away, the single attitude or value or principle that those who were happily married held onto was the concept of sacrifice. Sacrifice. That was the highest indicator of success and happiness in marriage. Sacrifice. This study, by the way, helps us to understand something very interesting in the Torah. In fact, it's not just one of the weekly readings. It's the reading on Rosh Hashanah. It's the reading about the Akedah, about the binding of Isaac. The moment when Abraham is ready to slaughter Isaac and then he's told 
don't touch him, let him go. Sacrifice the goat, the ram instead. That's probably one of the most dramatic, I would say climactic moments in the Torah. And it's interesting because when we read that reading, I'm not going to say about how we read it in the weekly reading, but because there, obviously, even though there's a climax, then the story has to go on. But what, what's interesting is when we read it on, on, on Rosh Hashanah, when we read it on, 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 in, in the public reading on, 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 the, on the New Year, we're not reading the whole Torah portion anyway. It's, just, it's, a, it's a selection. It's a selection. It's just a, an, it's an excerpt. The Torah reading on Rosh Hashanah, after that climactic moment, it continues on for another, I think it's eight verses of genealogy. You know, he begat, he begat, he begat. Which is, obviously there's, there's infinite depth in every word of the Torah. But I'm saying just on a, on a simple level, it's sort of anticlimactic. Here we had the whole buildup to the Akedah, and then eight verses of genealogy. Very technical, very dry information. So I saw an explanation from the Rebbe. The Rebbe explains like this. You have to look deeply. And, and the direction where to look deeply is hinted to us by Rashi. Rashi is the preeminent commentary on the Torah. Rashi points out that the reason for this genealogy is because it leads up to the birth of Rivka, Rebecca. And Rebecca is going to be the wife of Isaac, who was just almost sacrificed at the Akedah. And therefore, Rashi explains this, that after the Akedah, Abraham thinks to himself, well, Look at this. My son's life almost ended just now, and he's never been married. He's never had an opportunity to have children. God promised me that I will have many descendants, specifically through Isaac. And if he would have died, then that wouldn't have been possible. So the boy's 37 years old already. I know it's not like the Rembrandt paintings. He wasn't the little kid. He was 37 years old. And it's time for him to get married. So after the Akedah, Abraham said, you know what? We've got to start thinking about a shidduch for this boy. Okay. And then that's, that's why the Torah comes in and says the genealogy which leads up to the birth of Rebekah, the future wife of Isaac. Fine. But the Rebbe says, look even deeper than that. The climax of this story is not the Akedah. The real story of sacrifice is not the Akedah. The Akedah is the warm-up, the opening act. The Akedah is what made the next act of true sacrifice possible. You see, what was our father Isaac's premarital counseling? How did his father Abraham get him ready for a real marriage? Tied him down to a rock and held a knife over him? And he said, son, if you can stay cool under those conditions, you're ready to get married. 
But it's true. It's true. The Rebbe says the real climax of this story and the real climax of the Torah reading on Rosh Hashanah is not the Akedah. It's the eight verses of genealogy after which hint to the marriage between Isaac and Rebekah. So how was Isaac prepared? How did he get himself ready to really be a married man? Through sacrifice. Through sacrifice. The Akedah is not the climax. The marriage is the climax. The Akedah was just to get him ready, to get him poised, to put him in the position to be able to live a life of sacrifice. So this is what I'm saying, that depending on how you regard ego, that is going to determine your attitude toward marriage. Because yes, marriage is the great ego destroyer. And if you're clinging to ego, if you're clinging to that sense of separate selfhood, and any threat to that is considered an existential threat, then you will not be very happy with marriage. Because marriage is, by definition, an existential threat to the ego. You can't do what you want anymore. It's not your life anymore. Your life is gone. It's all gone. Right? Now, but again, that's not necessarily a bad thing. If you're really spiritual, what's the greatest thing in the world you could do is surrender the ego, make yourself that open vessel, and let the infinity start shining through. That's the greatest thing a spiritual, a spiritual seeker can accomplish. And marriage will do that to you. You know, they talk about in the Talmud that they used to have a custom back in, uh, in Israel during the times of the Romans. There's actually a story about when one of the times the, the Roman legions were coming through Israel and uh, actually they were coming through the town of Betar and a, a wagon broke and they needed an axle and they cut down a cedar tree and the Jews flipped out. There was a riot because the Romans cut down a cedar tree. Well, what was the background there? So they used to have a custom that when a Jewish boy was born they would plant a cedar tree. And then when he was married, they would cut down that cedar tree, and that's what they would make his chuppah out of. They would make his marriage canopy out of the cedar that was planted when he was born. It's a very beautiful symbolism. There's a, there's a deeper meaning here as well, though. You know, it says in Psalms, King David says, that the righteous one will grow tall like a cedar in Lebanon and will give fruit like a date palm. So which one is it? Which species of tree is it? Is it the cedar or is it the date palm? So the Baal Shem Tov explained, well, there are two types of righteous people. One's like a cedar and one's like a date palm. The cedar grows very, very tall, and it has very sturdy wood. 
but it doesn't give fruit. The date palm doesn't grow quite as high, but it gives fruit. Why doesn't, it, why doesn't the date palm grow quite as high? Because the energy that it would have put into itself, into its own growth, it channels into the fruits, which give nourishment to, to others. So it's taking from itself, and it's giving that away so that others can have benefit. Baal Shem Tev explains, there's a tzaddik who achieves great spiritual heights, but it's all about his own growth. He's righteous, but only in his own spiritual growth. And that's like a cedar. Then there's a righteous person that's like a date palm. He takes the, the time and the energy and the headspace and the heart space that would have been put into personal development and, and he puts it into creating fruits, creating endeavors that will benefit others. The truth is there are certain periods of life that are meant to be more cedar-like and there are certain types, periods of life that are meant to be more date palm-like. When, when you're a child, you are not expected to be a major contributor to society. When you're a child, your needs are taken care of for you. Your parents take care of you under the roof of their home. They serve you, they, they feed you, they clothe you. Why? Because a child is in his formative years, and the, the, the purpose of childhood is to become a mensch. So really, childhood is your opportunity to work on yourself. When you're a child, an adolescent, a young single, that really is the time to focus on yourself. That's me time. And that's being like a cedar. And then comes the day when they chop that cedar down. And that cedar that was planted when that boy was born, they chop it down and they turn it into his marriage canopy and they say, your cedar days are over. It's not about your growth anymore. Now you're ent you've entered into a new phase. Date palm phase. Now it's time to be a giver, a contributor. Give, give to your family. Give to your community. Give to the world. So, so you see where the cynical attitude toward, towards marriage evolves from. It evolves from the ego's recognition of an existential threat. That's where these terrible, nasty jokes come from. You know, like, a man before he's married is incomplete. Having been married, he is finished. <laughs> but the whole married, buried attitude is really just an alternative perspective on a spiritual truth. What's wrong with being buried? You know what happens to a seed? A seed gets buried. And in becoming buried and losing, falling apart and disintegrating and losing everything about it that it had known is how it becomes a tree and unleashes Infinite potential. You know, like they say, anyone can count the seeds in an apple, but only God can count the apples in a seed. There are infinite apples in every seed. But that won't come out as long as the seed remains a seed. There's infinite potential within each person. But as long as you cling to the ego state, separate sense of selfhood, 
that infinite potential won't come out. The only way for that infinity to shine through is like the seed, to surrender, to allow there to be ego death and to be reborn as something incomparably greater. Incomparably greater. That's what marriage does for us. It induces ego death. And I think it's helpful to be transparent about that. Like Abraham was transparent with his son Isaac about that. He gave him a near-death experience and he said, son, that's what marriage is like. <laughs> Except this was a virtual reality. Marriage is the real thing. <laughs> this is what this is the message. What are, you, what are you supposed to tell a young person who's entering into marriage? That this is a way to enhance your life? Oy vey. You're setting them up for failure. You're setting them up for a resentment. Because if you tell them that marriage is going to enhance your life, and then they find out the reality, no, it's the opposite. It doesn't enhance your life. Enhancement means whatever you had before is now greater. No, but we're talking about something much, much greater than that. Not whatever you had before is now greater. Whatever you had before is gone. <laughs> seed will not become a seed again. Cannot go back. You cannot become a seed again. Seed has to continue forward fearlessly into its destiny of becoming a tree. Hopefully the right kind of a tree, a date palm, a giver, a fruit-bearing tree. You can't go back to childhood and adolescence where life's about me and my growth. Even though in childhood and in adolescence, those are appropriate goals. They are appropriate goals at that stage of life. Yes, they are. But for an adult, no. For an adult... An adult life has to be about something far greater than self. So Hashem, in his infinite wisdom and kindness, arranged reality in such a way that there's this basic life cycle event, this milestone, this thing that virtually everybody does that it's pretty much the most deeply spiritual thing that anyone could ever do. And that is to say goodbye to your old single self. Say goodbye to it. Go on. That's gone. You don't even go back and visit it on Sundays. The whole man cave concept. Pretending. That's like a, an adult pretending to be back in the womb. You don't go backward, you go forward. There's no more me time. And by the way, if marriage won't convince you, then wait a few years, parenthood will. <laughs> if you don't know that it's not about you anymore, there is no you anymore. Become a parent. Specifically become a mother. I've heard, at least I've heard. That's real sacrifice. I mean, a mother, you, you, you don't even have personal space anymore. You, don't, you, 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 you can't even sit in a chair without other human beings just climbing on top of you without even asking. At least that's how it works in my house. 
So, let's take a moment to reflect upon the fact that Hashem knows what's good for us. And Hashem deeply cares for us. And Hashem has given all of us the opportunity to do something deeply spiritual. Hashem has given us the mechanism whereby we can truly transcend self. We can become something far greater than who we are as individuals. Think about that. Think about that idea. You can be something infinitely greater if you just have the courage to say goodbye to the self that you've known until now. I know it's terrifying because from the perspective of the ego, that is, like I mentioned before, that's an existential threat. That feels like feels like suicide. To the ego, it is. But to the true self, to the godly self, to the soul, that's just the beginning. It's just the beginning. The beginning of infinite possibilities. The beginning of a life of, of meaning and of service where the power of the infinite is constantly channeled through that clear and pristine conduit. That's humility. And you know what they say? They say, be humble or get humbled. The end result is the same way either way. At the end of the day, we all come down to the conclusion that it's not about us. It's about him. I, one time I heard from a guy, some of the best wisdom you hear is from these old cranky guys in the AA meetings. I heard a guy 40 years sober, he growled once, the two rules of spirituality. This guy's name was Frank. The two rules of spirituality. Okay, what are the two rules of spirituality? Rule number one, there is a God. Okay, rule number two, you are not him. <laughs> so here's the deal. We can all do it the easy way, the graceful way. And we can be humble and we can just accept the fact we're not in charge. We don't run this thing. Or we could do it the hard way. We can go down kicking and screaming, protesting the affront, the assault, the insult to our egos. It can be heaven, it can be hell. It can be the greatest fulfillment of our spiritual aspirations. And it can be the greatest threat to the insecurities of the ego. I wish everybody true humility, transparency, transparency oneness with your maker, oneness with all, and blessings in every aspect of your lives. Amen.